It was spring of 1864 when Ulysses S. Grant took over control of one of the Union armies and decided to go and have a confrontation, one that would go down in history. Grant versus Lee. Up until then, the North had been trying various strategies to get past Lee and his army. They had been trying to take specific points and make certain attacks into certain areas, but it hadn't been working out. Grant decided he would take a different approach. He would confront Lee directly and bring an end to him and his army. This is what he told one of his sub-generals, General George Meade. He said, Lee's army will be your objective point. Wherever Lee goes, there you will go also. That proved to be a good strategy. In a relatively short order, the Civil War was brought to an end. Direct confrontation led to the end of that war. There's something almost romantic about the idea of a direct confrontation leading to resolution. You know, we want the good guy to confront the bad guy leading to the end, the happy end of the story. You know, Harry Potter has to confront Voldemort before the, the story ends. Luke Skywalker has to face off with Darth Vader. <clears throat> General Maximus has to face off with Emperor Commodus. I mean, that's just a formula. That's how it works. The good guy faces off with the bad guy, and then we get the end. Well, there's something deeply satisfying about that. And a direct confrontation very often is needed to resolve something. Our passage in front of us, John 5, shows us a direct confrontation that will serve to be the spark that will bring the resolution of the great sweep of history. That is the cross of Christ. The confrontation this morning is between Jesus and the religious rule followers of his day, the, the religious powers that be. And one day this confrontation will ratchet up to the point where they will crucify him to do away with this threat. But here we are on the cusp of it. And we need to see what it is that Jesus does to initiate this confrontation and then see what it is that's so offensive or the, the great threat that he presents to the religious leaders of his day. We'll see as we see this that uh, Jesus is both the greatest power that can work in a human heart and the greatest threat to that same heart. We'll see it in two sections. First, in verses 1 through 9, we'll see the power of Jesus' work. Verses 1 through 9, Jesus' ability to work as only his Father works in 1 through 9. And then in 10 through 18, the threat of his work how the very works of Jesus actually threaten the most religious-minded hearts in humanity. Let's begin in verses 1 through 9, the power of his work. In verse 1, we're told, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this has not been the first time that Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders have run in with each other in John's gospel. You remember back with John the Baptist, there was already some opposition to John's ministry and by extension to Jesus's. And then Jesus went and cleared out the temple. That certainly got him on the religious leader's radar. And yet now we're coming to a new section in John's gospel. Chapter 5 through chapter 12 bring us to a section where the opposition against Jesus is going to steadily ratchet up until it ends in murderous rage. What's the occasion for all this? Well, it's a particular healing of a particular man on a very particular day. 
We're told it's the, the feast of the Jews. Now, we're, we're not told exactly which feast that is. John's gospel mentions a lot of different feasts. There were festivals and feasts that religious Jews would keep. John doesn't think it's important for us to know exactly which one. All it's important to know is that it's a religious who's who day. If you're a religious Jew in that day, you would be out in Jerusalem on the, one of the festival days. That's the day Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. But notice where he goes. Verse 2, it says, Now there was a, in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, that's the house of mercy, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So where does Jesus go on this day when all the religious people are out in spades? He goes to a pool of human misery. It's a, a place where all of the disabled, in some sense, the, the people that couldn't get around, they, they would all gather around this pool. It had five coverings, kind of like little shelters they could hide under. And uh, there was this pool. Now, the reason they were gathering around this pool is they were desperate enough that they thought that maybe, just maybe, this would be a place where they would see a miracle. There appears to have been a belief back in this day that when the water in that pool started churning, that the first person that got in would be healed. Now, if your Bible has footnotes, you may see on, uh, for verse 4, it has a, a section there talking about an angel stirring up the water. Uh, you may notice that it just jumps right from verse 3 to verse 5 otherwise. Uh, that's because some of the older, uh, some of the manuscripts we used to think were the best ones we had included a verse that seems to be a legend that was alive in that day, uh, that there was an angel that would do something magical to these waters, and if you entered into it, therefore you would be healed. You can see it preserved in verse 7. The man says to Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So whether it was true or not, there was a belief that getting in this agitated water would somehow heal a person. Now that's the setting where Jesus shows up at. And he's going to pick out one of, these, one of these people out of this pool of human misery and do something amazing. Now, this is a... a helpful point to, if you struggle with the historicity of the Bible, or is the Bible trustworthy, this pool of Bethesda is actually a great example of how the New Testament documents, and John's gospel in particular, have the ring of truth that someone wrote them who actually was from that era. There was an age in the, about the 1800s or so where lots of scholars thought that the person that wrote John's gospel and other books of the Bible must have been, you know, hundreds of years afterward, that they just made up stuff that they thought sounded good. And one of the things they would point to is this pool of Bethesda. They would say, well, clearly, whoever wrote this didn't know about Jerusalem because you can go to this sheep gate on the north side of the city and there's no pool anywhere to be found. Clearly, your Bible is wrong. Well, you should be very careful about making archaeological claims that something isn't there uh, because people keep digging and keep finding things. And so also in the 1800s, they were doing some excavation, doing a renovation at the Church of St. Anne's. And lo and behold, they found some pools. And there were five structures, five shelters of sorts around them. It's right where they expected it to be. And you can go and visit it today. Uh, it's an aside, but it's one of many pointers we have in the Gospels. This was written by someone who lived in this time and who actually saw these events happen. Now Jesus in this pool of human misery comes and he picks one out of the multitude. 
Now, in case you think that Jesus is just going to show mercy to someone suffering, realize that he's going to choose one man out of what we're told is a multitude. He doesn't heal everyone. He chooses one particular man. Because like all the miracles in John's gospel, Jesus' demonstration of power is a platform to show his glory. Look with me, verse 5. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, it's hard enough to be someone who can't get up and walk these days with wheelchairs and uh, handicap accessibility. 2,000 years ago, you didn't have any of that. Now, even worse, this man's been an invalid for 38 years. That seems like an eternity right now, but back then the life expectancy was about that long. That means this man has been suffering for a lifetime. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Notice the intentionality of Jesus. Jesus looks, he knows this man's situation already. He intentionally chooses him for a reason. And then he asks him a very perplexing question. He looks down at a guy who can't walk at a pool for people that can't walk. And he says, do you want to be healed? You might be forgiven if the guy's reaction was like, Jesus, what sort of stupid question is that? Of course I want to be healed. And yet it makes perfect sense if what Jesus is doing is not gathering information, but actually drawing attention to what he's about to do. And we're told there's a multitude of people around. Imagine being at a pool that's shoulder to shoulder busy. Suddenly, this rabbi walks up and starts talking to a guy, asks him if he wants to be healed, and we see then his response in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool, and when the water is stirred up while I'm going, another steps down before me. I can imagine at this point, all eyes are on this man and on Jesus, and look what happens. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. In an instant, with just one command, Jesus gives the man all he needs and more to do what was impossible a second before, to stand to his feet, to lift up the mat he was laying on, and to walk off. You don't think that would have gotten a little bit of attention? Now, in this moment, we see yet another example of what we see throughout John's gospel of the powerful work of Jesus, particularly the powerful work of the word of Jesus. That in just a word, Jesus can do the impossible because that's how God works. It was by a spoken word that the universe came into being. A spoken word that brought light into darkness. A spoken word that created the creation, everything in it, all the creatures and people. It is the word of the Lord that is said to splinter the great trees of Lebanon. It is the, the word of the Lord that raises up nations and the word of the Lord that brings them low. God brings spiritual life to his people by his word. He brings judgment on others through his word. And Jesus himself is the very word of God, according to John. In this moment, we see the power, the raw power of Jesus taking a lame man and in a moment making him whole. Now, this is more than just a miracle, friends. This is like everything else in John's gospel. 
is meant to show us a spiritual reality. That Jesus is in the business of taking spiritual paralytics and making them walk. Now, now I, I, when you think about what happens when someone comes to Jesus, it's nothing more than this miracle played out in the human heart. The Bible tells us that we're all slaves to sin. That our hearts are incapable of uh, living up to God's standards because they're bent the opposite way. We always want something other than God. It takes a mighty working of God. You might even say it takes the word of Christ to change a heart from a God-hater to a God-lover. I love that old Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be? He pictures a dungeon and the Word comes and it sets this, this imprisoned soul free. The, the words of this one stanza. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Oh, what amazing love that is, brothers and sisters. You know, that's true of every one of us that's come to Christ. At some point or the other, our spiritually disabled souls heard the word of Jesus, get up and walk. Not just pick up your mat and walk, get up and follow me. And through faith, we believed and we did the very thing we were commanded to do. That's what Jesus is able to do because Jesus has the very power of God. His word makes things happen. Now, notice also, though, that this word that he speaks was prompted by a question. Jesus asked this man, did you want to be healed? And it's a perfectly good question for us to ask this morning. Because while Jesus is perfectly powerful enough to change a heart, he also does so in such a way that you actually want to come to him. Sometimes we get comfortable with our lives, even our dysfunctional, messed up lives. Change is scary. The idea of giving up a lifestyle or a sin or something that you've never told anyone about, well, that may just seem like a bridge too far. And yet Jesus here tells us, get up, come and follow me. If you're here this morning and you've never taken Jesus up on that offer, if you've never put your trust in him and left behind your sin to follow him, today could be the day. You could find spiritual life inside you where there was nothing but death before. But it only comes if you put your trust in Jesus. Now, it would be a mistake to think that this healing, again, is done just for the sake of healing a suffering man or just to draw attention to himself because this healing is done in the context of what comes next, and that's the conflict. That's what we see in verses 10 through 18. Well, first we saw the power of his work. Next we see the threat of his work. Verse 10 shows us what uh, should be an indicator of the storm that's coming. Uh, actually, the end of 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now, if there was a soundtrack to John's gospel at this point, it would go, dun, 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 dun. You know, like, the, the, he did this on the Sabbath. Now, this shows, again, the intentionality of Jesus. It was not an accident that he was where he was during a festival, and it certainly wasn't an accident. He did this healing on a Sabbath because what comes next is the collision of the Lord of the universe and religious rule keepers. 
Keep reading with me in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now talk about missing the forest from the trees in this moment. A man that's been lame for a lifetime is suddenly given the ability to walk and all they can think about is some rules being broken. But let me help you try to understand the mindset of a first century religious Jew. Back in those days, there were rabbis that had really taken to heart the mistakes of their ancestors. They had learned the need for enforcing God's laws. If you remember back to the exile, God's people had been disobedient to God again and again. They had not listened to God's statutes and laws. They had not kept Sabbath. And as a result, God sent pagan nations to conquer them and rip them out of their homeland. Now that a few of them had been brought back, they took the words, the heart, the, they took the words to their hearts of the prophets that God took seriously his laws and they made sure that they would not allow this to happen again. The way they would do this is they would create rules around God's rules. So you take something like the Sabbath. God clearly taught that on the Saturday or on the seventh day that you were to not work, that you were to rest. It was a day of worship and refreshment. What the rabbis of that day did is they constructed 39 different rules around the Sabbath. Think of it like a fence to keep you from even getting close to breaking the Sabbath rule. Now, as you might imagine, this was a fruitless enterprise because anytime human rules start to be used to try and keep us right with God, a disaster is just waiting to happen. It's an impossible project. Those rules became a sea of loopholes and corruption. Those 39 rules included things like this. You can't carry something higher than your head because that's work. But if you keep it at waist height, well, that's fine. Uh, there are certain things you can't carry outside, but you can carry them in your house. Uh, but you can extend where your house is if you were to take a piece of property and attach to your house like a rope and then take that rope with you, and that extends your house. So you could you know, lift things outside at that point. And you can go about 1,000 feet from your property, but if you were to go the day before and maybe bring some food and put it somewhere, and then you walk your 1,000 feet or yards to that place and you eat the food, well, at that point, you've established a new residence. So now you have another 1,000 yards, but it just got to be ridiculous. The only people that could keep this were the ones that felt like they were the ones that were in charge. They became self-righteous, started enforcing the law to show that they were on the inside. Everyone else was on the outside. It's in this sort of environment that you realize that if you are a religious rule keeper, it will prevent you from taking joy when you see God at work. You know, imagine if you were a judge at the Special Olympics in one of those wheelchair races, and halfway through the race, someone stopped their wheelchair and previously was unable to walk. They stood up and ran the rest of the race on their legs. Now, I would hope your first reaction shouldn't be, disqualified, right? There should be a sense of awe and wonder that God would do something so powerful. And yet, they were blinded by the fact that their rules were more important than the powerful working of God among them. So they do what any good rule keeper will do. They start an investigation. They, they find the man. They start asking him some questions. They, 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 they say, don't you know 
that it's not lawful to do that on the Sabbath? In verse 11, maybe we get a, a hint why this guy didn't have any friends. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Under the bus, Jesus is pushed at that moment. Uh, not me, Jesus is the one that you want, you want. But at this point, he doesn't know Jesus' name because they ask him in 12, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as the crowd was in the place. It doesn't seem like the brightest man, certainly not the most loyal. He's not even able to name Jesus, didn't even take the time to ask him who he was that healed him. Yet the, as the story progresses, we'll see Jesus is going to continue to show him mercy. He actually goes out of his way to help the man connect the dots between his healing and his spiritual state. Look with me the next verse. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now in that phrase there, Jesus reveals that this man's problem was not just a lack of mobility. His problem is the problem that all the rest of humanity has. He is a sinner before a holy God. Now, friends, this is just a minor point, and yet it's always something that needs to be reiterated these days. A warning is not itself unloving. Jesus here warns the man. The way that's written, it's obvious. He's talking about the final judgment. He's telling him, stop sinning, or there's something worse than paralysis coming your way. And we live in a day and age where that's not a popular thing, and yet Jesus is not concerned with being popular. He's concerned with our real need, and that's right standing before God in our eternity, where we'll spend it. Now, something also that needs to be said about that statement with Jesus, it shows us that sometimes sin is connected to a particular uh, instance of suffering. Sometimes, but not all the times. So it is both true that there are times where a certain sin results in suffering, and there's a connection between the two. You, you can see this come out in James 5. It's uh, that passage where the elders are instructed to pray over a sick person. Part of that passage is the person is supposed to repent of their sins, to confess them to the elders in the hopes that they would be healed. There are times where our sin leads us to bodily sickness and other suffering. That means that it is a worthwhile endeavor anytime we have some manner of trial or suffering. That is a, one, a gentle warning from God that we are to take stock of our souls and repent of any known sin. Well, that's true. What's also equally true is what we'll see in John 9, when Jesus will heal another man. And in this case, he tells us, he goes out of his way to tell us, there's no specific sin that caused this. It's neither this man nor his parents' sin that caused him to be in this state. So that means while we're on this side of heaven, we will never know fully the exact A to B relationship between a sin and suffering. And yet we're to use the opportunity that any sort of suffering in our lives brings to draw us closer to God and repent of any known sin. Jesus warns the man, and then we see how he's thanked for it in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Again, you can see why he doesn't have any friends. Uh, not exactly loyal. And then we get to the conflict. 16 through 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So at this point, the Jews start 
probably speaking against Jesus, probably verbally, because he would dare to break their Sabbath rules. And at this point, you might expect Jesus to take the easy way out. It would be justified to, to say, you know, your rules are not actually in the Bible. To, to say, those 39 laws that you're pointing to, they don't actually have any basis in my father's scripture, so I'm not going to listen to him. That's not what Jesus does. He instead escalates the conflict. Look what he says in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now that requires a little background to understand. The Jews in Jesus' day had those 39 laws about the Sabbath, and there was also a theological debate. Does God abide by his own law? The way that was teased out, particularly in the Sabbath, is what was most important. Everyone acknowledged that on the seventh day, God rested from his work of creation, and that that became the pattern for all of his creatures. The question is, is God bound by that seventh day rest the way that his creatures were? Now, there was one school of thought that said that God was above the law because God was the lawgiver. So God broke the Sabbath, yes, because providence still happens on Saturday. You know, the, the world has to keep spinning. Someone's got to keep it moving. You got to have your impulses in your heart keep firing for your heart to keep beating. The birds need to know which ones keep flying and which ones fall out of the air. God does that on Saturday, just like all the other days of the week. So clearly God is breaking his law, but no big deal. He's the lawgiver. He's above it. There was another school of thought that said, well, that won't do. Um, actually, God keeps his law. But if you keep in mind the, the various rules that we've created, we can actually illustrate that he's not breaking it by keeping the world spinning on Saturday. So, for instance, we're not allowed to lift a heavy burden high. That would be work. Well, what's a heavy burden for God? I mean, is it really any effort for God to make a new star or to keep the earth spinning? Like, no, that's just like God lifting something to his navel. No big deal. So they found even a theological way around this particular conundrum. Now, Jesus takes this very debate and he connects the dot between God's authority to work on Saturday and his own. Jesus says, uh, you, you want to know why I did this on Saturday? You want to know why I did this on the Sabbath? Because my father works on the Sabbath. And that means I can work on it too. Now, unless we misunderstand what Jesus is saying, verse 18 shows us they understood it perfectly. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What is the great offense of Jesus to the religious heart? It is this. Jesus claims to be God, and so Jesus claims authority over right and wrong. He claims the ability to choose who's a good person and who's not. He claims to be able to wipe away our man-made religious rules in an instant because he himself is the lawgiver. Now, we live in a day and age in which the amount of teaching from the Bible and the assumptions from the Bible are decreasing steadily. People appeal less to what's written in the Bible for what makes someone a good person or not. 
And yet, friends, don't think that that for a second means that we are not religious rule keepers and as a large society at large. In fact, I would say for the religious rule keeping is at a peak as it has been in decades at this point. Right, take, for example, the outrage culture. It may not be rules coming from the Bible, but take any particular infraction that someone may do in a public sphere and watch as people pile on top of them, running over each other to pile on that person to destroy their lives on social media. Or look at the way people not only get involved with causes, but they get involved in causes in such a way to signal to others that this is the right way to live. They do so very publicly and flashy in a flashy way. All of that is going back to this assumption of the religious heart that I am somehow above others that don't keep these rules as well as I do. We may have chucked the Bible, yet our religious hearts remain the same. To this, Jesus takes the great offense. To, Jesus, this, to this, Jesus uh, gives the great offense of coming in and claiming to say, I get to define who a good person is. And all your virtual signaling and outrage will have nothing to do with it. Friends, let's realize also within the church, we are not immune to this. Local churches can be breeding grounds for religious rule-keeping. Right, think about how preferences get elevated as if they are written somewhere in the Psalms if we just dig far enough. We may have a particular style of music we prefer. There may be songs that we think are more theologically rich. And we look down on other churches that don't have that same expression of worship. Or maybe it's a particular emphasis on evangelism or lack of emphasis on evangelism or the way we do children's ministry or the way we do any number of things as a church. It could very easily turn something that is an important issue, even a wisdom issue, and turn it into a law of God that's nowhere found in the Bible. Religious rule keeping at its heart. It tries to show that we are better than others because we keep the rules better than they do. But the only thing it does is it prevents us from taking joy at the work God is doing amongst us. Now, Jesus will not allow us to do this or any other thing. If he really is God with the authority of God as he works, as the creed we read, if he is light from light, then he has the authority to tell us what is right and what is wrong and how we are right with God. And the scriptures are clear. It's not by rule keeping. It's by grace. You see, this man who was healed physically here may have failed to connect the dots between his spiritual healing, between his physical healing and the spiritual healing he needs. Yet none of us should make the same mistake. If we are right before God, it's because Jesus has come and healed our souls. If we are right for, before God, it's not because we've kept the rules. It's because Jesus kept the rules. And gave us his perfect record to have as our own. The good news of this Savior is he's not a tyrant. No, he is a good, good Lord. And he frees us from the trap of rule keeping. As if that could ever save us in the first place. C.S. Lewis rightly put it this way. There's a reason why Jesus claiming this authority for himself is so offensive. Because it doesn't give us any other option. That wonderful trilemma, if what he says is true, if, what he, if you understand what he says about himself, there's only three conclusions. He's either a liar, 
He's a lunatic or he is Lord. Friends, would you see that Jesus is Lord and get rid of the religious rule keeping as if that would do any good in the first place? Parents, uh, there's a word here that needs to be heard related to our parenting. I was a student pastor for six years prior to coming out to Castleton, and, and every year I had to give the same talk because it was so prevalent. We need to banish the thought that our kids just need the right rules with the right enforcement, and that will make them holy and acceptable to God. I used to say it this way to my parents on the first day of youth group. I would say, parents, we're not in the business of making church kids. We're in the business of making gospel-transformed kids. What your kids need is the gospel of Jesus. They need to be converted. They don't just need rules to keep sin out. Sin's already on the inside. Now, that doesn't mean you don't worry about influences and you aren't careful about the places you put your kids and you're not intentional about discipleship. But it does mean that you don't ultimately put your hope in those things. Parents, if you're not used to thinking in terms of how do I talk to my kid in a way that points them to the cross of Jesus. Come talk with me. I'd be glad to point you to some resources that could help you in that area. To all of us, we need to be reminded that Jesus and Jesus alone is where we find our standing before God. That no amount of rule keeping or no amount of virtue signaling could possibly make us a good enough person. That only through faith in Jesus And only by the work that his word does within us, by his power, that's the only way we will one day be welcomed into heaven. It's a scary thing to trust totally in Jesus and give up any merit of our own. And yet it's the only way to true and lasting joy. I remember being uh, in Jamaica doing some evangelism training with a group of teenagers. Jamaica's an interesting country. It's very highly church. It's like 90% of people would identify with some church there. And yet, wide swaths of the Jamaican population, we would say, if you had a deep enough conversation, and realize they don't actually trust Jesus. So a group of college students and I went to uh, Montego Bay. It was a really hard trip, let me tell you. And... Um, we did an evangelism training for a group of teenagers. And uh, there was about 15 or so teenagers that we were paired up with, and we uh, had some material, pretty basic stuff. You know, God's holy, we're not. Cross is the answer, new life in Christ, all that sort of stuff. And so we were walking through them with it over a several-day period, and we started to realize, I'm not sure that they're actually trusting in Jesus, at least most of them, for their salvation. There's one guy in particular that I remember talking about with, and I asked him, so how how do you think you're going to heaven one day? He's like, well, I'm going to obey the, uh, God well enough and I'll be baptized so he'll let me into heaven. And I remember I, I was intrigued by the baptism piece. So I was like, so have you been baptized yet? He's like, uh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not uh, good enough yet. Um, I'm working on it. And sometime soon I'll be baptized and then I'll know I'll go to heaven. And, and it just broke my heart in that moment. I knew this man was trusted, this teenager was trusting in himself instead of trusting in Christ. Well, over the course of the week, he and several others of the students, they came to fully understand what the scriptures teach, that Jesus saves us by his mighty work. We would call it grace, that all he had to do was believe and he would be right before God. I remember him telling us in a testimony before we left, he said, I'm I'm just so happy now. For the first time, I realized Jesus did everything I needed. You know, friends, that should be each of us. 
It seems threatening because we lose the ability to force God into anything. And yet, our religious rule keeping will never, never make us right before God. Yet Jesus, with a word, can tell us to rise. Come and follow me. And if we do that by faith, we'll find him to be all the Savior we need. Let's pray.